Our, reading is from, our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The word of the Lord. Okay. Super. Matt, good to have you. Good morning. How are you? I don't know how I am this morning. My 15-year-old had a sleepover last night. (laughs) So I didn't get a lot of sleep. It's really a mystery, isn't it? I I don't know. I don't know what it is about teenagers. I, I keep learning the same lessons. I've had three of them, and I forget the lesson. And the number one rule I've discovered, rediscovered at 15, is thou shalt not embarrass me. Have you, have you got, do you know, it's like, oh my, just whatever you do, don't embarrass me, Dad. It's glorious. So if I'm a little rambly this morning, you know why. So, well, um, we're looking, we're in a series called Becoming the People of God. Have I got that right, Johnny? It is. Uh, Becoming the People of God, subtitle, Ostedes. Did I say that right? Ustedes. Yeah. Ustedes. Yo. Have I said that right? (laughs) Yins. Yous. I, I give up. Okay, but I love the sense that in, in captured in this, the title of this series, that, you know, there's a sense of becoming in the Christian faith, in the Christian walk, and that's exciting for me. I'm going to turn 60 years old in a week. I know. It's unbelievable. 
I mean, who'd, th who'd think, looking at me, that I'm going to be 60 years Anyway, but I am. I'm going to be 60 years old. So it's exciting to feel that there is still more to come, that I haven't, as it were, reached the end of the journey yet. But then, in another sense, are we not already the people of God? Do we not already have everything that we need in Christ? So where I first went to church in South Kensington in London, which is a very expensive part of London, there used to be a lady who was called a bag lady. She was the well-known bag lady in the city, in that part of the city. A bag lady, she was essentially homeless, so she had bags, and she lived out of bags. And she was quite a well-known figure. She'd been living like that for forever. And then she died. And when she died, everybody was stunned to find that actually she came from a very wealthy family. And in fact, in her lifetime, she had inherited several properties in London. You're talking millions of pounds. So she was an extremely wealthy lady. So she'd lived with an inheritance that she had never fully or at all stepped into. And I think, at some level, it is possible to live the Christian life to some extent like that. That we have this inheritance, we have it all, and yet we need to become, we need to step into that inheritance. And that's always a process. It's an ongoing process. We are always becoming. And I want to talk a little bit about this morning, about one particular part of that inheritance, perhaps the most Important, And it comes to us in this prayer. This, uh, what we read this morning is a prayer recorded by John. And it's a prayer that comes at a pivotal moment in Jesus' life. Jesus is facing the cross. He's just outside Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen. We all know what's going to happen. And we get this prayer. And I, I don't know about you, but I find when I read the prayers of Jesus, I feel like you're getting as close as you possibly can to his heart. I mean, if you've ever prayed with anybody, you know when you pray with them, you're hearing something very deep about their lives. So when we're reading Jesus' prayers, surely, surely, we're getting very close to the heart of the matter. We only have four prayers of Jesus recorded. The first is in Matthew. And Jesus prays, when he's being basically challenged, his ministry is being challenged, and he says, basically, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things, I wonder what things he's talking about, from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children. Interesting prayer. Then we have a prayer when Jesus is standing outside Lazarus' tomb. And Jesus lifts up his eyes and he prays, and he says, I thank you that you've heard me, Father, I know you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. So he's praying at a moment of crisis with Lazarus. Then we have Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, a moment of crisis. And Jesus prays, Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I wonder what that is. I've come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. So there's the three instances where we have a little glimpse into Jesus's, as it were, heart life. And then 
we have this prayer. By far, in John 17, by far and away, the longest prayer recorded. And it comes, as I said, at this moment of high intensity. Jesus is facing what he calls the hour, the cross. So I don't know about you, but I'd be like, I'm interested to know what Jesus is praying about right now at this moment of high intensity. And I want to look at it this morning. It seems quite rambly at times. I don't know as you were listening to it, like, what? In you, me, I, you, they. What? What's this all about? Quite a long prayer. But the key is, I think, in the very first section. And this is what we read. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, the cross. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. There's something to do with glory in this cross. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, and here it comes, to do what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Is that the purpose of Jesus? To give eternal life. What do you think? You're looking puzzled. I think so. I think so. So I want to spend a little time thinking about that word eternal life. I wonder what pops into your mind when you think eternal life. How many of you are like, Oh, that's the thing that happens to you when you die, right? Lots of nodding heads, maybe. And it's to do with the length of time. It's life that goes on and on and on and on. This life is not going to go on and on and on. So eternal life is something that happens when you die, and that's the life that will continue, yeah? Well, let's find out, shall we? Let's pray. Father, this morning... As we uh, dive into your scriptures and wrestle with who you are and your purposes in this world for us, I pray, Lord, it would be you who speak loudest, that, Lord, you would speak through your words and by your spirit. Help us to understand. Open our hearts to what you have to say to us, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I hope by now, and apologies if you're visiting for the first time, if you're not sure about your faith and you're exploring the Christian faith, um, we're going to do a word study this morning. Are you excited? Woohoo! Well, word study. I'm so glad I came to church this morning. Now, uh, words are kind of important, aren't they? Uh, uh, my, uh, we love to play Scrabble in my family. And curiously, the 15-year-old who had a sleepover last night, she loves Scrabble. I don't know why. I'm like, really? Okay. And so we play Scrabble. So my wife, myself, and my daughter is the only one left at home. We play Scrabble. And my wife is just way better at it than anybody else. Last time we, play, we played, in the end, my daughter and myself, we teamed up to combine our scores to see if we could beat my wife. No way. It didn't. We still lost. And as we play Scrabble, because we're so desperate, every so often we have this little like, group of letters and we're like, oh, let's just randomly put them together. And, you know, and that sounds like a word. And then we go to the app, which is the official app for Scrabble, to see if it is a word. And sometimes, lo and behold, it's a surprise. It is 
is the word. I'm like, great, we can fit that word into the picture of the Scrabble board to suit our purposes. So we take a word whose meaning we don't really grasp, and actually, I've noticed, we rarely bother to read what it actually means. It's just Scrabble app says, yes, you can use it. We just insert it into the picture on the board. And I think there's a danger that we can do that with some of the words we come across in the Bible. We have a picture that we've inherited or we've got from somewhere, and so we take words and we just fit it into the picture and we make it mean what we hope it means. So eternal life. What does that mean? What do those words mean? Well, you'll be very glad to hear that we have a fairly accurate idea of what those words would have meant to Jesus. Words are complex. They change their meaning over time. And the words chai olam, which is the Hebrew, in themselves have changed over time. So this is not easy, but we do know what it would have meant to first-century Jews, and Jesus was a first-century Jew. And this word has started to take on this meaning, particularly through the great prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah and Daniel. And to try and simplify, I came up with this brilliant graphic. I don't know if we've got that. Can we bring up? There it is. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? I did that on Canva. Have you come across Canva? I love Canva. It's glorious. The word eternal life, you can't take it out of the context of Jewish thinking of the time. You have to understand it in its historical context to really understand what Jesus was talking about. You can't just take it and make it fit your Scrabble board. And we know what it would have meant to Jewish thinkers of the time. By the time you get to Jesus, you basically have this theological framework. No, you haven't joined a seminary this morning. You're all theologians. You all have a theological framework, a way of understanding your life and God. So this is how Jewish thinkers of the time would have understood their theological framework, their world. They believed that they lived in this age a present age which wasn't great. It was an age of suffering under Roman rule. It was an age of loss, a sense that something that they might have had once upon a time had been lost as they'd been sent into exile, had come back from exile, but when they came back from exile in Babylon, it wasn't the way it used to be. Still wasn't what it was supposed to be. So they had a sense that they were still in exile. They were in a troubled place. But they had this strange, radical idea that there was an age to come when things would be restored to the way they should be. An age, in a simple terms, when God would once again become king and the kingdom would come on earth as in heaven, which we pray every Sunday. So there was this present age, and then there was an age to come, which they called 
eternal life. That was the expectation. Eternal life was the day, and they would sometimes talk about it as the day, when God's kingdom would once again rule on earth. Now, they had a cultural expectation of that. They saw it only in terms of Israel, not in terms of the earth, although they might have known better. But that was the expectation. Have you ever wondered why the disciples never once ask Jesus, unless you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they never say, Jesus, Jesus, what's it going to be like in heaven? when we get there. Not once. What do they ask him? How is the kingdom going to come and how will we know when it's come? Their entire imaginations were wrapped up in this idea of a kingdom that was coming, eternal life. So they asked Jesus about the kingdom, and Jesus taught them about the kingdom a lot, more than anything else. He taught them what this kingdom would be like, how it would come like a mustard seed, what it would contain, the kind of life that it would be like, Sermon on the Mount. All of this is talking about eternal life, the life of the age to come. You remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus with a question, and as he was setting out on his journey, I don't know if you got that scripture, a man ran up to him and knelt before Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to, bag lady, inherit eternal life? This thing that we have in our idea, this eternal age, this age to come, how can I have that? When? When I die? No, now. How can I inherit eternal life? And the extraordinary and radical claim is that Jesus seemed to claim that he was the one who was able to give people this eternal life, the life of the age to come. In John 10, he says, "'Is my sheep hear my voice, "'and I know them, and they follow me, "'and I give them.'" eternal life. And then in this high priestly prayer, the impartation of life, this impartation of life of a different order of the age to come, Jesus says, this is what gives glory to the Father. You want to know what gives glory to God? It's eternal life, the life given to us. When Jesus had spoken these words, we read, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So it's unsurprising then that Jesus was very concerned about talking about eternal life. He called it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. We're not going to read the entire New Testament this morning, but if you want to know what the kingdom is like, read the New Testament. He tells us this is the life that you are entered into when you become my disciple. But there are a couple of things we can uh, glean from this prayer that are, are worth looking at. First of all, this thing of eternal life is pure gift. 
This is what we read. And listen to the language of gift giving. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. There's this sense that God has given us to him. We're part of the gift. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. This is all gift. You know, I was in a, a prayer group the other day. And we were talking about um, Paul, the Apostle Paul. And somebody said, I'm not very good in prayer groups. And I was like, oh, I'm a pastor. What am I supposed to say? Am I supposed to shut up? But if I say something, do people say, oh, he's just a pastor. What does he know? I don't know. But anyway, somebody said, oh, Paul, you know, it was just great, his conversion on the road to Damascus, because he realized he was on the wrong team. That's interesting. So his conversion from Judaism to Christianity. And everything in me wanted to say, no, that's not what happened. Paul never converted from Judaism, ever. What he did was he understood that the expectation that he had that this kingdom, of, uh, the eternal kingdom would be given eventually to Israel had actually come in the person of Christ in a way that was not expected. That the gift had already come in Jesus. So he became, in essence, a Messianic Jew, but remained Jewish. It's all part of the same story. The age to come had somehow broken into the world in Christ Jesus. The ultimate gift given on the cross, the hour had come. And then the second thing we learn from this high priestly prayer, it really reinforces the nature of this gift. That it's not primarily about endless time. Don't worry. I'm not saying that Jesus said, didn't he? he does say, doesn't he? Although you die, you will live. But the focus is not on the endlessness of it. The focus is on the nature of it. And this is what Jesus tells us about the nature of this life of the age to come, this eternal life that has already been given in the person of Christ. And this is eternal life, he says. This is what it is. That they know you. Know not and just know about, as Matt, that wonderful sermon. It's this deep, intimate knowing as you know a person or a husband or a wife or a friend. That they know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is about the quality of life, primarily, not the quantity. Eternal life is not so much everlasting life as knowledge of the everlasting one. And that quality of life, that age to come, the claim is, the Christian claim is, has strangely been poured into our hearts already by the Spirit. And we read from Jeremiah, a prophet who came a considerable time before Jesus was around. 
And they already had this kind of ache, this sense in the body of Christ, in the people of God, that one day, there would come a day, the days are coming, Jeremiah says, declares the Lord, well, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, a new covenant. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers, not like the old one, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, and my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, so they knew me. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after this present age, in the age to come. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And no longer shall one teach that his neighbor and each his brother, you won't need people like me anymore, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That's eternal life. Have you got an eternal life? Do you have it? Have you lived fully into the inheritance? Probably not. Is it more than you experience now? Almost certainly yes. Does it go through the barrier of death? Oh yes. For the life that was in Christ could not be defeated by death. So that's all very well, Matt. I thought this was going to be a talk about mission. Actually, that was the title that I was given. <laughs> and I was looking at this scripture thinking, what's this got to do with mission? Well, I don't know. But I wanted to tilt, pivot a little bit to talk about mission. Because actually this whole passage ends, or we read, ends with this, these words, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As you sent Jesus, as Jesus was sent into the world, so we are being sent. What was Jesus sent in the world to do? We've been talking about it. To bring eternal life. So if he's been brought to bring eternal life into the world, what are we being sent into the world to do? Bring eternal life. So if we think about mission, I wonder now just to do another little word study. If we think about mission, which means sentness, if you will, I wonder how many of us would think, oh, oh yeah, that's for missionaries, people with a specific calling or a specific gifting. But I don't read that as anything like that. It just simply says to use, ustedes, yins, y'all. As you sent Jesus, Jesus was sent into the world, you are now being sent into the world in exactly the same way. To bring eternal life, life of the age to come, into this world. Perfectly? In some kind of utopian? No, I get that. But you are being called to look and see where you could bring life of a different order and a different kind. Where? In your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, in your families. The life that is described in the New Testament for you, we are being sent into the world to bring that kind of life. Always, always pointing back to the source of it, Jesus. That's what we've been sent into the world. And if that's true, is anyone here excluded from the task of mission? Not one of us. 
I think that's exciting, don't you? Yes! And I just want to finish with this. Yeah, but I, I got to introduce some slides. They're not very good. I know they're not very good. but <laughs> If that's true, if what I have said is true, that Jesus ultimately is brought to bring a, a life of a different order, the age to come, then we can say this about mission, that it is universal in scope. There is not one part of this world or aspect of this world that is off the map in terms of mission. Nothing. But I'm just going to say this in a moment, just explain this. It's particular in application and singular in focus. What do I mean? Well, let me give you an example of the universalness, if you will, I think, of the mission, this thing of bringing a different kind of life, a different order of life. My wife works as a communications coach, and she's currently coaching a guy. He's actually Jewish, Orthodox Jew, and he studies fragile states. And he's been looking at America. And he's saying, is America a fragile state? Well, no. Economically, we're absolutely not. Our institutions are just about holding on. And um, we're not a fragile state. But there is one uh, um, uh, aspect of American life that has probably would qualify as a fragile state, that we have become incredibly isolated and lonely in general, that our sense of community has been profoundly fractured. And he studied this in depth. And his basic thing is, look, you know, we have all sorts of polarization and stuff going on. You can't solve that until you solve the basic thing of getting people back into living in communities where they actually know each other. That all the other issues are downstream of that fundamental issue. Now, I look at that as a Christian and I say, is that an opportunity to bring something of eternal life into that problem? Yes, no. 100%. I've also been doing some voluntary work for an organization that works with mental health. Do we have an issue in America, elsewhere, but actually particularly maybe downstream of this fundamental issue with mental health in America? Yes, no. Yes, massive. Is the church well-placed to actually to bring something of this different order of life into that realm? I think so. I think so. And it doesn't have to be big. I remember going to a Christian businessmen's conference, and they had these days of conference, and you know these experts up there, and one guy, uh, you know, had sort of Q and A at the end, and then a guy stood up in the audience and said, "Well, I'm a Christian businessman, and uh, well, how do I witness in my realm of business?" And one guy on stage, he said, "Well, pay your bills on time." Everybody sort of laughed nervously. And they said, well, in our country, in Britain at the time, there's a massive issue that companies routinely do not pay their bills on time. They'll wait two, three months, particularly the bigger ones. Smaller companies, that is a massive problem with cash flow. It can put businesses out of businesses, out of business, unless bills are paid on time. So here is a very, somebody said preacher, I like that. And here he was saying, look, this is very simple. You can behave in a way that is consistent with the life of the age to come, with integrity and honesty, and with care and concern for the person who you owe the bill to, concern and concern for others, 
And it will automatically have a witness. You don't have to do very much. And you do that, at some point, somebody's going to ask you a question. Why do you do this? And you can point back to the source. It doesn't have to be incredibly complicated. So it is universal in scope, but you'll very be glad to hear it is particular in application. You're not being asked to save the world. Thank God. If Jesus can say this, I glorified you on earth, I don't forget that scripture, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. If Jesus can say his Father in heaven gave me a specific amount of work to do, and I've now finished that work, and nobody's ever, I've never heard a preach on why Jesus said, I've only come for Israel. He didn't say I've come for everything, interestingly. He limited what he was doing to the territory of Israel. I learned that lesson painfully in Mosaic. I saw, with my eternal goggles on, something of the need in Mosaic which claims to be a community and isn't. And I thought, I wonder what it would be like if I, as a Christian, brought a co-working space and maybe childcare and things like that to build an environment that builds community with, of course, at the center of it, a church. I have not changed my mind in that. I've seen another big church locally, NCC, do exactly that in D.C. and now in Springfield. I think it was the right thing to do, but I was not the one being called to do it. You know why? I like to retreat into a cave and growl at people when they approach. I'm not primarily a community builder. It's just not my thing. I wish it was, but it really isn't. I know I seem very nice when you meet me, but I'm really not. <laughs> but seriously, that was not the work that my father had given me to do. So mission is universal in scope, but we have to do this in complex process, and it isn't easy, of discerning what work have I been given to do, and then limit it to that. And then finally, of course, it is particular, it is single in its focus. We are always, always radically focused on the person of Jesus and willing to share why we might want to live in other ways in this world by pointing back to the source and the gift of life. I was going to tell you about how this prayer points to the opposition that you will get if you live like that, but I can't be bothered. I think you get that. A lot of the prayer is really just saying, look, you know, Father, I've managed to protect these people, my disciples, while I was here, but I'm off. Would you protect them? Because that kind of life is not easy to live. So he talks about that. But I really want to finish, and I'm really finishing now, by saying that this, in a way, is a moment of consecration for Jesus. This prayer, this whole prayer, is a kind of moment where he's sort of committing himself to the path and the, and, the, and the end of the work that his father has given him to do, which is the cross. So I just thought maybe, just a thought, I would offer you guys an opportunity to consecrate yourselves or reconsecrate or recommit yourselves to this thing of mission that is universal in scope. There is literally nothing in this world that cannot be touched by eternal life, nothing.
You're not being called to do it all. You're not being called to save the world. There is something particular that CCV is being called to in this context. And there's something particular that you as individuals are being called to in your context, in your homes, your families, your neighborhoods, your, your place of work, wherever it is that you have some influence. So I, I just wanted to finish by giving you an opportunity to do that. You don't have to do it if you're visiting or you're not sure about faith. You don't have to do this at all. But maybe we could just close our eyes and I will pray a prayer and you can echo whatever part of this prayer you would like to. Father, this morning, my prayer for CCV, for, for myself, for each of us, is that you would give us fresh eyes for mission. Would you help us to understand what this thing of eternal life really is, what it looks like? And if some of it were to break into my neighborhood, my family, Amongst my friends, what would that look like? Where do I see the need? And what part of the work are you calling me to? Help me to always point to you as the source of this life. Jesus, I believe that's what you're asking me to do because you prayed it just before you went to the cross. Lord, I'm willing. Help me. Help us. Amen. Be thou.